As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. We're back and we are live, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for Burn and Return. It's me here tonight. Ryan Ray is with me as well. Matt is, well, Matt's working, uh, Ray. Probably out of those 168 hours in the week, probably 169 just because, well, that's the way he rolls on both ends. Get me? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Ray got a visual there that he couldn't, he, it took him a couple of seconds to pull that out of his mind. All right. Uh, so, listen, for, for those of you that don't know, uh, we spent last week live in person in the beautiful city of Louisville, Kentucky, had our, uh, dirty deeds live with our patrons. We had about, oh, I think it's like 55, 60 or, or so folks there for our live event. We hung out before we hung out after adult beverages were had many to excess and including several of our patrons that ended up at local fast food establishments like White Castle and others that shall remain nameless. But mm-hmm. nobody got in trouble. Nobody got arrested. Uh, Ray hit. How many times did you hit up the old waffle his house there, Ray, in your trip here? Oh, I, I made a record. I mean, twice. <laughs> twice. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know the, what, the, Ryan? Yeah. I'm already having Waffle House withdrawal. I'm already having Waffle House withdrawals. I mean, it's. Uh, I, <laughs> I tell you, you know, if, if people would expect that a, uh, you know, a 50-year-old lawn care applicator from the state of Hawaii to walk into that place and look like a fish out of water. But I'm telling you what, I've told the story before. I'll stick by it. I was there the first time Ray ever ate at a Waffle House. And let me tell you what, he walked right in there and looked like he not only belonged, but people looked at him like, man, this guy is probably a fucking regular here. And Nobody batted an eyelash, and so, uh, you know, he, he lives on in Waffle House lore, and Ray, we can't wait for when your permanent home is over here in the continental United States, and we'll just have to see. Well, we'll have to see. You know, it was uh, kind of interesting because the first Waffle House we hit, you know, was not long after I touched down in Atlanta, we met up with James, a.k.a. LW50. And mm-hmm. I pretty much uh, did the same thing because, you know, walked in there, sat down, and nobody looked at me like I was an alien. Okay? Now, Not at all. Ray, for the folks at home, because I know this will be a question of people's minds, and hopefully, you know, our, our probably largest uh, by revenue spon- non-sponsor that would be great to have as a sponsor Waffle House, Ray, what is your order? If you had to make one for order, you know, for your last meal at Waffle House, what would it be? 
Damn. I think mine would be just the uh the the biscuits and gravy and keep the coffee coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, and keep the, and keep the coffee coming. That's 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 all I'd all I'd ask. And uh you see that's how I that's how you see when I do that they already know shit. This guy this guy knows what's going on. I mean, <laughs> Well, and I think part of it, too, is, is too much time in Hawaii, Ray, and, and spent around all of those uh, breakfast places that only serve the blue pate whale penis special, right? That's the problem. Yeah. But with mm-hmm. that, we're going to dive in this week's headlines. JP, go ahead and roll that headline stuff. Nothing to fear here. This is just the Ladies and gentlemen, here our first article here is about a Naperville, Illinois company's robot, quote-unquote, lawnmowers, could make the commercial grass cutting easier and better for the environment. Let's see here. Uh, a Naperville entrepreneur says his technology can help mow down the amount of harmful emissions churned out in the commercial landscaping industry through the use of robot mowers. Ila Sagoyevich uh, is uh, Naperville-based Havenshire Technologies is showing how autonomous commercial-grade electric mowers provide a safe, clean, and cost-saving alternative for landscaping companies and government entities that maintain large open fields. So Galovich said electric mowers make sense for the environment because they don't pollute the air with contaminants or cause greenhouse gas emissions. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, gas-powered mowers account for 5% of total air pollution in the United States, and one push mower emits as much pollution per hour as 11 cars and a riding mower as much as 34 cars. So uh, Sagavolt Golovich said, because the price of electric mowers is so steep, most landscapers choose not to adopt. Our goal is to make it inexpensive and easy for professional landscapers and produce a sustainable, eco-friendly solution, he said. He went on to explain that Havenshire Technologies does not produce lawnmowers, but the software that allows mean grain electric lawnmowers made in Ohio to run autonomously in a designated mapped-out area under the supervision of a human who has a kill switch to stop the mower at any time. That sounds comforting. Uh, The Mm -hmm. (laughs) savings in time and money, he said, when multiple mowers run autonomously at the same time. One person could manually mow where three to four other machines could work in an area in tandem. This week, Havenshire Technologies partnered with a non-profit coalition, Chicago Area Clean Cities, or CACC, CAC. Uh, to demonstrate to landscapers and representatives from park districts at the Forest Preserve District in DuPage County how autonomous electric mowers might work in their organizations. Those attending the demonstration raised questions about how autonomous mowers might deal with objects in the way. Sagalovich said robotic mowers have the ability to maneuver around permanent structures such as buildings, trees, sewer covers, when they are added to the mower's internal GPS mapping that provides accurate location down to one centimeter. Sensors around the mower, he said, will cause it to stop when people, pets, or other objects not designated on the map come into its path. The mower will not move until the obstruction is out of the way or the person supervising authorizes the mower to continue. It also stops, Sigalovich says, if it gets out of range of the human supervisor. Director of Parks Tim Quigley said he and members of the Naperville Park District attended the demonstration this week to learn about the technology to help if it might fit into the park maintenance plans at some point in the future. As a park district, eco-friendly alternatives are always appearing, quickly said. He added the district struggled this summer to fill temporary mowing jobs, and autonomous mowers could be a means of getting grass clipped in a timely fashion if summer personnel problems continue. 
Beyond the environmental and staffing factors, autonomous mowers can run day or night as long as at least one person keeps watch over the process. Segalovic says, night operations would benefit golf courses or sports fields that are often occupied from dawn to dusk during the warmer months, said John Walton, chairman of CAC. John Koenig, spokesman for CAC, said the nonprofit coalition, the group focused on promoting clean transportation in Chicago and surrounding suburbs. We've been working with businesses and government agents for over, agencies for over 30 years to help them transition their vehicle fleets to sustainable transportation, Koenig said. So there it is, Ray. Uh, you know, basically they're taking electric zero-turn mowers, uh, and I've seen these mean mm-hmm. green machines before. They're not bad. They're not bad. They actually have a pretty decent quality of cut, probably about a mm, six-and-a-half, seven-hour battery life, you know, when it all comes down to it. And they're just upfitting them, you know, with uh, RTK GPS so that they have, you know, precise right. positioning. Control mechanisms, then, right. Mm-hmm. And then the vision sensors to pick up, you know, uh, so, you know, it doesn't mow down the fescue and, say, like a Yorkshire Terrier. Uh, so that's always a good thing. But, you know... Uh, the thing that gets me here is the whole human supervisor thing. And I, I, I agree that, you know, there's always going to be an inherent level of supervision that you have to have. These aren't, you know, completely passive use machines. But, you know, the idea of one of those smaller robotic mowers, you know, like the Husqvarna brand or, or, or something similar to that, that just have those little razor blades. And as soon as you pick them up, they're kind of dead, you know, in the water. Mm-hmm. This is a commercial grade zero turn mower, right? How, you know... Just put yourself in the shoes of, you know, uh, Honolulu County. I mean, how would this be received out there? Because I know there's, uh, they're hell-bent on, you know, making these strides and uh, with these initiatives and whatnot. But there is a hell of a safety risk here. Even, even if you do have a human present, right, it's still up to he or she. And if they've got multiple that are running, uh, I, I don't know. So where does that land? Where do you think that would land in Honolulu County? It would not play very well because of how crowded and congested things are. Because, you know, Ryan, what's still fresh in my mind is our burn and return earlier where that child got that metal object shot through him. Yes. Right? I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I need to be assured that this robotic mower also knows to stop if, say, there's a piece of rebar on the ground or a concrete form stake, you know, left in the bushes because when a mower picks that up and propels it, goodness, I mean, that was horrific, Ryan. And, okay, my next scenario or thought is, is say the operator is controlling multiple mowers, right? How does this fella keep track of everything going on around the mowers? Because right now in the municipal areas in, in Honolulu, the policy is, is that when bystanders or traffic gets too close, Machinery idles down and stops, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we don't need to have rocks or sticks or metal shrapnel, you know, shot through somebody because that is not a good day. So 
Now, you know, I, and I, I, I agree. It, it, that's the thing. It's just the care and attention they have to put in, right? Mm-hmm. And so then, I, I think my next question is... Go ahead, Ray. My next, my next question, too, is... Okay. You know when we do things on batteries? Uh, mm-hmm. Can somebody please explain to me where the electricity needed to charge all of these batteries come from? Does the electricity ferry show up at the end of the, of the sh- work shift and wave his magic wand and say, batteries charged? And my next question is, okay, if these batteries contain metallic lithium, mm-hmm. do you know what it's like trying to put out a metal fire? I'm not talking about ask a diesel the, or a gasoline fire. Ask the guys and at the Equip I, I know, Expo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The DeWalt because, uh, Sorry, DeWalt. Right. And, and, you know, as an aside, all the rage is, are these, you know, totally electrically operated cars where all of the power comes from a bank of lithium batteries. Uh, one of the aftermath of that hurricane that just went through Florida, causing extensive flooding damage in that part of Florida, is that when these EVs or electric vehicles corrode due to the inundation from salt water, they then short circuit and ignite. I mean, and that is like not a good day for the fire department where whereas the fire department knows what to do when a normal car catches fire, they you know break out the foam and extinguishers rated for fuel fires and they put that thing out now. But for a lithium fire, it's not that simple. I mean, I've heard stories of you need approximately 8,000 gallons of water to put out a Tesla fire. When a Tesla catches fire, you need about 8,000 gallons of water to you know, put that out. And oh, if you fail to completely put that out, when that vehicle gets winched onto the bed of the tow truck and then gets brought to the uh, junkyard, uh, that battery pack is still hot. And guess what? You can have a fire reignite <laughs> at, at the junkyard and the poor junkyard owner is thinking, oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, yeah, I think that's part of it is, is what can go wrong and I, the only way that you're going to vet these things out is if you put them out in the field, you try them, you figure out what the pain points are, and go from there. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like the way that some of the other manufacturers are going after it. Now, you know, those those smaller bots are not going to mow through sticks and leaves and stuff like that. So, you know, there's still labor involved. You're not saving 100% of that back. But, you know, you, you have to take a shot here. And, uh, yeah, I think these will probably have a higher barrier to entry. Um, based on what I've seen so far, but you know, uh, there's only one way to find out. You know, you gotta shoot some shit out of the side discharge deck, I guess, right, Ray? So, here's mm-hmm. another one, Ray, out of Chicago. 
Here's how to handle excess leaves on your lawn this fall. This comes to us from Chicago Tribune and Tim Johnson at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And uh, it starts off with a question. I have a lot of oak trees on my property. I'm already tired of cleaning up leaves. Can you offer any advice to reduce my work this fall? Tim goes on to say, since you have a lot of trees in your property, you should continue mowing about once a week now as the leaves start falling more rapidly. Once every couple of weeks is likely enough in early to mid-October unless your grass is growing quickly. A thick layer of leaves that covers the grass may smother the lawn if it left over winter. A medium to dense layer of leaves can damage any areas of the lawn that were seeded earlier this fall and are just getting established. Carefully rake or blow some of the leaves off the new grass if the ground is too soft to push a mower over. If a mower leaves ruts as you are mowing, that area should not be mowed. Good advice so far, Tim. I use a mulching mower for my lawn. It has several mature oak trees, and throughout the property, I do not collect clippings. It saves time and eliminates the need to dispose of grass clippings and most leaves, while returning nutrients back to the lawn. My grass is barely growing now, but the leaf drop is increasing, so I plan to resume mowing about once every 7 to 10 days to avoid having a layer of leaves getting too thick on the lawn, reducing the efficiency of the mulching mower blade. Nice little picture there of, of Tim's lawn and him chopping the hell out of these leaves. Partially. Probably needs to go back over it again. Uh, change the direction every time you mow. Breaking leaves, bagging leaves on the occasion. So, you know, Ray, I thought I'd put this in here because we do get this question from time to time. And I know mm-hmm. it's a question that's off-sighted, right? So, uh, and, and it's not a huge ordeal that you have to deal with so much out there. But, uh, yeah, the the mulching of the leaves... No problem at all. I think the people that, you know, uh, have to have, like, you know, a full catharsis and see their completely, you know, sh- leave-covered lawn, you know, perfectly clean and uh, a whole pile of leaves out of the curb to be picked up or in the ditch to be burned if you live out in the country or uh, bagged up and ready for pickup to go to the compost facility, any of the above is, uh, eh, I don't know. I-, I don't think you need to do that. I think mulching is fine in most cases. And Ray, you know, um, you know what? Uh, what do you know about uh, phosphorus and leaves? And do you think there's any any detriment to moving those leaves off site, potentially having them, you know, end up down a storm drain or something like that? Any worries there? Do you have Do you have any? Uh, I have huge concerns. About... Actually, I have huge I have huge concerns. I mean, and to me, uh, I, you know, think in terms of not moving an issue or a problem somewhere else where if it if i were god i'd say all landscape debris stays on site hoas and karens that want that quote unquote clean yard and go fuck themselves here they're here because ladies and gentlemen the uh, the Green Dog Lawn Care <laughs> Program uh, in fall is brought to you by the fine folks at Moby. So take a look, mm-hmm. check them out. Amazon ship right to your door on Prime. So yeah, there's there's a little bit going on there. And if uh, you don't know what we're talking about, uh, you know the only way to find out some of these uh, inside jokes that we tell, you have to subscribe to Patreon. www.patreon.com forward slash Bird of Return for less than the price of a gallon of gas or. Uh, you know, there ain't much. We always say an airport beer, but I'm pretty sure that uh, those those airport beers might be at the top tier now of $20 uh, to get you in there. But uh, fantastic concept behind the scenes, uh, Zooms, power hours, movie nights, all this kind of stuff, plus all the access to uh, us and many of our 
uh, fearless and, and highly knowledgeable folks that uh, go through our Discord server and answer questions of all kinds, shapes, and colors. Time's up. It's over. Here. There you go. Right there. there Matt is still with us. All right. We're going to read one <laughs> more spirit. here real quick. In spirit. That's right. We're going to read one more here on the headlines portion before we jump out of this. So uh, this one's pretty interesting, Ray, and, and, it's, and it's got me worried. So summer heat and flash drought uh, has dried up the Mississippi River, choking a crucial shipping corridor. It could devastate America's agricultural exports. Okay. A crisis of low water levels in the Mississippi River could soon reach consumers' wallets, and it's not forecast to end until, mi- until January. A summer of heat waves baked the central U.S. evaporating water off the Mississippi. In fall, a flash drought struck the Ohio and Missouri river valleys, preventing them from replenishing the larger river. At that point, they'd only contributed small amounts of water from snowmelt to its flow, according to AccuWeather meteorologist Paul Pastelock. By early October, the Mississippi River was breaking low water records. Receding waters have, a, have global implications. Mississippi River Basin produces about 92% of the agricultural exports in the United States, including 60% of U.S. grain exports, which travel down the river to the Gulf to ship across the world. Much of the shipping is stalled in mid-October and then resumed at a crawl. AccuWeather doesn't expect enough rainfall to replenish the river until January at the earliest. Experts say we haven't seen this full impact just yet. While the U.S. inland waterway system saves the country between 7 and $9 billion annually compared to other systems like truck or freight, economic losses incurred from the Mississippi River drought are significant. Through December, AccuWeather estimates $20 billion in losses caused by increased transportation costs, shipping delays, and job losses. Dev Calhoun, Senior Vice President of the Waterways Council, a group that advocates for modern waterway infrastructure, told Insider, she expects losses to be far greater than the $20 billion once all data is aggregated. Consumers will feel the impact. The shipping rates are going to go up, and ultimately those get passed on to the consumer, Calhoun said. She added that still shipping, transporting by the river is still the most cost-competitive way to move goods. We probably haven't seen quite the impact yet to the consumer market, she said, adding whatever when everyone's concerned about now is getting goods as quickly as possible to those destinations and those buyers around the world who are waiting for their product. So commerce is moving right now, but it's moving inefficiently, and it's moving really slow. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been dredging the river 24-7 to keep it deep enough for barges. U.S. US Army Corps of Engineers told uh, Insider they expect to keep up at that pace until the river rises again in January. We haven't had any channel closures, knock on wood, to date, but it gets to be a challenge as the river levers continue to go down said Lou Del Orco, Chief of Operations for the Corps, St. Louis Division. Supply chain issues are not unique to the drought. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has caused countries in Europe to place embargoes on key goods like grain and energy supplies. Many international buyers are tuning to the U.S. to get those goods, which are primarily transported via the Mississippi River. Coal is in high demand right now, Calhoun said, and the low water levels present a challenge to ship it out of country. This is a temporary blip, and we'll get back on track once Mother Nature cooperates. We've seen high water and low water in the same shipping season sometimes, and the industry will manage those different weather disruptions as they come. John Deason, lead professor of the Environmental and Energy Management Program at George Washington University, isn't feeling as optimistic. He said higher food prices at the grocery store are just the first way consumers will start feeling the impact of low water levels. Pastelock said it's unclear how, much, how climate change will affect the Mississippi River in the long term, but it's possible that the river's drought cycle accelerates. 
Instead of every 10 to 15 years, for example, the drought could strike every 5 to 10. We can fix it, but so far we haven't, Eason told Insider, adding, and the reason that we haven't is the pain hasn't gotten sufficiently severe for people to focus on it and elected officials to do something about it. Drought is part of a natural cycle with the Mississippi River Basin. Waters were similarly low in 1988 and 2012. You can't really put it all on climate change, past Lux told Insider. Still, climate change could be amplifying the heat waves, the drought, diminishing snowpack that brought the river so low. Scientists have to conduct rigorous analysis to attribute any single event to climate change, but on the whole, they're confident that rising global temperatures make extreme heat and drought more severe and more frequent. In that way, the Mississippi shipping slowdown shows how climate change can operate in the background and push stressful conditions over the edge into crisis. This is a global problem we're going to have here for a long time, Deason said. For vulnerable places where the economy is heavily dependent on rainfall, like the Mississippi watershed, it's a real issue. So, Ray, you know, an interesting article that, you know, sort of portrays the situation that's going on down there where the volume, the volume of shipping is down. I've, I've read somewhere between 75 and 90 percent, um, you know, so in, in today's economy, you know, as, as the article you know, sort of alludes to, People are looking to us to ship out a lot of stuff, and if we can't get grain downriver from, you know, places in the Ohio and the Missouri valleys, that's a major, major, major problem. And so, uh, problem. How, you know, let's just t- focus on, you know, leave the climate change piece out for a minute here. Um, not discounting that, not saying that it's not a cause, right? But underlying is we still have to adapt, right? That's not going to change the you know what the river is used for and how waterway transport of you know commodities grains everything like that go down through there it's set up to do that and we have to manage as best we can so you know my question to you ray is um you know in the short term how bad is you know how bad does this get i know you can't tell the weather and can't forecast that no crystal ball but you know are we looking at uh this prolonging all the way into 23 and now we get major, major problems. Could well be. Could well be because, mm. you know, I kind of keep a pulse on the weather myself. And uh, let's just say that I was out working uh, this morning and I was dying because it is almost November, right, Ryan? Yeah. And. Here in Hawaii, we got treated to, like, underground temperatures of about 90 degrees. Okay, and it's almost November. And, but I am not freaking out or blaming climate change because I've come to realize that all of this is very cyclical. Okay, this is very cyclical. And when I say cyclical... I remember two decades where it was 90 degrees on Thanksgiving Day. I also remember when it was 90 plus on Christmas Day. So the 10 or so years where temperatures dropped down and it got, you know, cool, wet, and rainy were just the opposite or the bookends of a cycle. And similarly, within the United States, a lot of our weather is cyclical. It is not climate. 
it is literally a cycle that goes from one end and then it works its way back to the other end. And it's been doing it long before the internal combustion engine, long before factories were created, long before technology. It is just nature. I mean, the nature tries to find a balance and oftentimes nothing's perfect in nature, so it works back and forth between two extremes. But speaking to this whole issue of how to get goods or commodities from one end to the other is disturbingly, we had a railway system in the United States. Am I right? Yeah. We had one. And then that got kind of pushed to the side and deprioritized as antiquated and not important. But you know what I know about trains? What's that? Trains run rain or shine irregardless of the level of water in the rivers. They keep on going. Well, we'll talk about that, too. There's something coming up in uh, Burns that <clears throat> may have an impact on that. But, I, you know, I, I think you're right that there are, there are cycles to the climate. I think that, you know, we see those being amplified, right, through, you know, changes in climate, man-made changes that are happening. And mm-hmm. I don't know that, again, that this is one of those issues that's, Yes, you have to address, you know, emissions, you have to do all this other stuff, but you still, again, there's that period in between that stuff has still got to happen, right? And and we're not going to change, yeah. you know, we're, yeah, we're not going to change it so substantially that you, you just stop, you know, sending 60% of the U.S. grain down the Mississippi River. Like, that's just, uh, that's, uh, that's almost impossible. Happen. And yeah, you can't happen. And to that point of, you know, the climate change folks and, 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 and when they push that hard and I, and I agree with climate change. I understand what it is, why it's happening and how it affects right these cycles, but the the issue is is that if we go all in and say okay, hey, we're going to just put that on a train and send it on, one we become we become way less efficient, two costs go up anyway, right? And three mm-hmm. um we're, we're not you know, we're not helping the situation or the cause, right, when it comes to those emissions. So, uh I think we've got to figure out some some real clear ways on how to uh, keep that Army Corps of Engineers uh, dredging, dredging, dredging to keep those channels open, and uh, we'll see yep. what happens. I mean, we got to, yeah, we got to, we got to keep on, uh, you know, have have the contingency plan or what I call Plan B e and C in place because, uh, you know what I do is I avoid catastrophizing, you know, natural events. I avoid doing that. I I really don't don't do that because for me it's called hey, hey, this is Mother Nature. She's drunk. I think I need to take Mother Nature and, you know, put her in bed and give her coffee tomorrow morning because Mother Nature's drunk. <laughs> You know, and that's how, mm. and that's how I approach it. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Ray, it is now time. Time's up. It is over, and it's time for 
one of our favorite segments, Juno's Turf. Juno's <laughs> Turf! Hi, I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today because Joe knows turf. <laughs> he most certainly does, ladies and gentlemen. Joe does know turf. We had the distinct privilege and honor of meeting Joe, our biggest and uh, lowest funded sponsor of any of them uh, for, for this segment. We got to meet him in Louisville last week. And, uh, you know, yeah, he is uh, a thousand percent Jersey. He is there to piss people off, <laughs> pick fights, and sing bad karaoke. And, you know, that's why we brought him. All right? That's why we brought him. So, without further ado, uh, Ray, I was actually sent this clip by several individuals. And they wanted us to take really? a look at it, review it, and just see what happens. Yeah, this, uh, one, two, three, four. Four people sent uh, this clip. Um, between the time mm-hmm. it was uh, launched and then uh, this, the, just here uh, yesterday was the last time I saw it. So, all right, Jay Pink, let's roll it from that timestamp and let's see what we're dealing here with from Alan Hayne with the Lawn Care Nut. To make a real difference in your lawn. So with Cool Season Lawns, the strategy is exactly the opposite. You're going to actually put your fertilizer down last and your biostimulants down now. When we do that fertilizer, we want something that's high in nitrogen, and I want you to keep in mind that that nitrogen is not for the lawn to use now, it's for the lawn to use next year in the spring, but so you can be the, the actual fuck. Okay. Earliest wow. So, so, so <laughs> Alan is saying here, he's talking about winterizing, right? Winterizer fertilizers and mixing brown liquids. That's the topic of the video. So we're talking about uh, you know a, a late season application of nitrogen on a cool season turf. And Alan is saying that 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 plant will not actually use that nitrogen until next year. And I, I, I hope, I think, I don't know, we'll let him continue on here, that maybe he's conflating that with it's going to use as much as it can right now. And we know that the later you get the season, especially about this time, through most of the Midwest, Northeast, that that application is pretty inefficient at getting into the plant. But, yes. There still will be some that gets in the plant, and that particular fertilizer is then consumed and used right through photosynthesis to create carbohydrates that end up in the roots, and that's what sustains you know the plant through dormancy. And then when it comes out next spring, it's got you know good healthy root mass, root depth, root vigor, and that's what's pushing things along right as the as the grass is you know coming out of dormancy, it's actually using those carbohydrate reserves. Uh, down there in the roots so and, and pushing forward. So that's the so, same principle no, as... Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so that's the same principle as me having that uh, half a pizza at uh, you know, 2 a.m. and then be ready to rumble, you know, the next day. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you want to, yeah, if you want to liken it to that, Ray, let's just go ahead and use an analogy, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, what what I think Alan is saying is that, or at least here, and we'll, we'll hear him out, and we'll correct ourselves if you're wrong, but, you know, that pizza at 2 a.m. that we had in Spinelli's in Louisville, right, which was delicious, by the way. Um, yeah, that was good. <laughs> he's saying that if you eat that mm-hmm. pizza, that your body is not going to digest, use, and consume 
those nutrients, right, and and carbohydrates and everything else that's in that, right, um, mm-hmm. until the next morning. And what's actually happening, right, is that you're digesting that even in your sleep and maybe a little bit more inefficiently than you would if you're awake, right? We know that about, um, you know, metabolism and everything like that. And then just like in spring, right, with your cool season grass that you've fertilized as a winterizer, right, the next morning, or in the grass's case, the next spring, is basically spent shitting it out for a long period of time until you feel better, the grass looks great, and everybody's all hunky-dory and ready to go for the day or the spring. So it's kind of like that. But let's see what else Alan has to say. On to use now, it's for the lawn to use next year in the spring. So you can be the earliest one out the gates, the earliest one getting started, and the earliest one dominating green in your neighborhood. So you can leave these granules sitting in the bag inside your garage all winter, or you can spread them out on the lawn so they're sitting out there ready to go in the spring. What's the difference, huh? So for you guys with cool season, you actually have a lot more time. Stop. Yeah, pause, please. Okay, so he doubled down and, okay, so you can spread those or you can leave them in the bag all winter. So I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I'll go look just for the sake of trying to be transparent and right. Uh, I believe that the 30 or 50% slow release. Let's look and see what we've got here. Zoom in on the bag. So, polymer coated urea, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, this particular bag, uh, 12.48%. So, it's about 50%. So, 50% slow release or slightly over that. Um, right. Slow release products. So, I think what he's saying is that the polymer coat is going to sit there and nothing's going to happen with it. But, Ray, could you explain <laughs> how a polymer... And I'm just asking, I'm not trying to be, belabor the point or patronize, right? I'm just asking mm-hmm. for the fo- fo- you know, folks at home that want to hear how much Joe knows about turf, um, and Ray too. How do yeah. polymer coatings work in terms of releasing the urea that is inside of them? Okay. Your polymer-coated uh, urea fertilizers, what they do is that polymer shell releases the nitrogen or the urea back out of that shell based on two things, moisture and temperatures, right? So if you have sufficient moisture, it will release. It'll constantly release. However, that second factor of the temperature is that the higher your temperatures, the faster the urea pushes or exudes back out of that polymer coating. However, uh, Ryan, would you please enlighten me as to what typically happens in the northern half of the United States from winter to spring? Well, I mean, in most parts of it, you know, there's certain part, uh, certain parts out further west, right, into mm-hmm. Iowa and the Great Plains that might be abnormally dry, so that stuff might sit there and, you know, not mm-hmm. really do much of anything. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that you could have, you know, some positive effects from it the following year. Um, Mm -hmm. The other side of that, though, the vast majority of the Midwest and Northeast is that we have, you know, uh, ample precipitation, you know, in the form of snow, rain, sleet, droppel, whatever Mm -hmm. that you want to have during that time frame. 
And certainly, uh, as you said, temperature doesn't get uh, so important because it's the length of time, right? So as temperature goes up, that product might release over the period of what, Ray? Probably six, maybe seven, eight weeks. So when we nope. extend that out and say that, oh, hey, we're now we're talking about, you know, like 16 weeks, you know, maybe a little bit longer, you know, through the wintertime here. Well, that I'm, is I'm a function thinking... where it's going to uh, osmotic pressure, you know, it goes across the gradient, higher potential, to lower potential. It's going to come across, doesn't matter what temperature is, it's going to continue to come across. It, and if you give it enough time, it will all come out and it will not be there. Right. So. I, I don't know that that's a good piece of advice other than if you're trying to, well, you know, move product. Well, my other, my next question is, is that mm-hmm. say uh, we're lucky and due to the low temperatures, most of that polymer-coated urea is still intact for spring snow melt. Yep. Because I'm I'm thinking about something like I know nitrogen is very good for grass. I also know that excessive nitrate and nitrogen are not good for water weights and bodies of water. You know, I'm I'm thinking about that because what happens when you dump a lot of nitrogen or wash a lot of nitrogen into a waterway or a body of water? What happens, Ryan? I'll tell you. Well, I'll tell you, too. Uh, uh, ask the folks in Florida and ask them why they're not allowed to use this, why they're not allowed to have nitrogen applications in the wintertime. It's not too far off from what we deal with up here, right? Uh, you know, the grass yeah. types are different and all that, but the principle and the premise is still the same. So let's watch a little bit more here and see what's going on. Time right now to kind of plan things out. What you basically want to do is you want to wait until the very last mow of the season. Now, you'll know when this is. You, you'll be out. You'll have cleaned up all your leaves. There'll be a few left, maybe a little bit of cleanup sticks to pull out of the yard. And you'll look and you'll notice, hey, it's kind of grown a little bit. Not much, but I'm going to give it one last mow to kind of clean things up. When you do that mow, and you know which one it is, right after, that's when you throw down your winterizer. And the reason you do that is, again, we don't want this for this year. We want this to sit in the lawn get covered by snow, and then next spring, whew, snow melts, washes oh, it right in, dear. shoots the lawn right out the gates. Now, if the perfect world exists, you'll throw this down, get snow the I'm next out. day, and not see the... Stop! Okay. <laughs> so here's, here, here's something, and we've talked before, Ray, about the, uh, the four R's, right? Yes. Right place, right time, right rate, right product, okay? So mm-hmm. what we're violating here, right, is right place, right time. And the reason I say that is, would you, Ray, is there ever a situation, a scenario at any given time, cool season, warm season, I don't care what, you know, continent you're on, is there any reason that you would apply fertilizer or have fertilizer sitting out on saturated ground? Uh, Never. I mean, never, never. Time's up. It's over. Never. Yep. That's right, Alan. It is. Because... Here's the thing is that, you know, these uh, granules of polycoat urea, I know what they do Mm. under flood conditions, Ryan. They float. They move. They they float up and wash down the drains like a turd. Okay? 
So uh, and... there's there's a lot more bad there's a lot more bad than good is what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. But there may be yeah. some good, and I don't disagree that you can make a case that in certain situations, and I'd love to back this up with some type of applied research or you know, and I'm not saying you got to do a However, full three year graduate student study. Go ahead. Right. Right. However, you know, if I was going to put grass to bed for the winter and say I'm working in that time frame between September through October, I'd be feeding the grass with immediately available nitrogen like non coated urea or ammonium sulfate in gradual doses up until about two weeks before actual dormancy. And do you know why I would do that, Ryan? Why's that? Because then I know that I'd be feeding that grass and the grass would be utilizing it and converting it to stored energy for you know, usage next year because, you know, if we want to go back to the pizza analogy, uh, that would be like me saying, okay, I'm going to hang on to that pizza, right? Uh And I'm not going to eat it right now. Instead, I'm going to leave it sit for several days and then come back to it. Uh, No bueno, right? Yeah, anything you know. can happen. Like the like the silverfish and the roaches can come. I mean, you know, and eat it for me, among other things. It's just not a good scene, right? So you know, hey, we've all we've we've all had room temperature dominoes or Little Caesars two days after the fact, and it ain't no good for anybody. It's a sad state of affairs, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it it is what it is. Live hey, and make, learn. Watch just just the rest of that clip real quick and and finish out. That, mm-hmm. I didn't want to make sure we give. Uh, fair opportunity and fair time to this here. See the lawn again until March or April. However, these are living things. We're at the mercy of nature and all of that. So it's probably not going to happen that way. And that's where hoping for the best comes in. Control your controllables. Look at the data. Understand what your weather patterns are holding. When historically you get snow, that type of stuff. Use your intuition from living in the area that you've lived in for a long time and make your best guess at when that latest point to get this down is. And from there, hope for the best. I'm Alan Hayne, the Lawn Care Nut. Thank you so much for watching. Lots of resources down in the description below, and I'll see you. All right. Alan, thank you. Um, with that being said, the last thing I want to touch on here, Ray, is the timing. And we've, we've, we've hit this point several times through over, over the years and yes. everything like that about mm-hmm. that late timing and the fact that, you know, the research, the data, right, the things that Alan's told us to, you know, look at and understand has shown us that, mm-hmm. You know, the efficiency of those November applications, which we're going to be in November here in a couple of days. We're recording this on Sunday, October 30th, that here in the Midwest, that those uh, applications are uh, taking up about about 12 or so percent of what they would have if you made an equal rate application two months prior in uh, mid to late September. So 12 percent, Ray. Not a lot of bang for your Mm -hmm. buck. And again, they'll come back and say, oh, we've got 50 percent solar release in there. I don't know how much is going to be there, and even if it is, what what did you lose? You know, where did it go? If if all of it isn't there, where did it go? And the answer is nowhere good. So time's up. Nowhere it's over. Want... Go ahead, Ray. Next. <laughs> Next. Next. I mean, you know. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's troubling to hear that kind of stuff uh, from yeah. somebody with a big this platform just, and and yeah, this is just disturbing because you know Ryan, he's basically telling people to do the very thing that will cause their regulatory agency in their state or municipality to say these lawn enthusiasts and lawn care operators are just screwing up the environment and they give zero fucks and we need to then correct this and you know when a state or a municipality takes corrective action you know what their priority is yeah they seek to shut down what they perceive to be the source of pollution and they mm-hmm. give zero fucks about whether that corrective measure will have an adverse impact on economy, aesthetics, etc. They're just going to say no more. You know, they're going to say yeah, no. And that's <laughs> and that's unfortunate is that you know it's paint with a broad brush, but this is the way you're right. That's absolutely the way that it you know um, it doesn't take too many instances for something to happen you know in a in a very small industry for there to be a large ripple effect and we're not overstating that because we've seen it we live in this industry mm-hmm. it's how we make our living and all that kind of stuff so uh for anybody that's going to watch this and say oh you're just ripping them out you know like you know what that's not the point the point is is that it, yeah you know, it's nothing it's personal teaching opportunity yeah. it's a teaching opportunity there's some things he said there that you know we can use uh as teaching points and so uh Hopefully he watches it and he can make some more content off of, uh, you know, the uh, the good and uh, research-backed information that we just provided there. So, with that, Ray, mm-hmm. it's time. Time to hear, uh, let's see here. Sheila Scream. Time for our burns. Now, if you don't know, uh, and we sort of alluded to it, but I didn't state it outright, Ray was able to leave the island uh, of Oahu, where he lives, and come over here to the continental United States, spend a week with us last week. It was a great time, an awesome time, but the only reason that he was able to do that was by concocting a mix that he calls the STFU mix, and you can... Google that on Urban Dictionary to find out what that stands for. Uh, But it is a concoction of what, Ray? I, I usually put in the following Cutlass, Teenex, a new Exteris, and Imidacloprid. You know what I call that, so it's, actually? What, what's that? I call that STFU, and for Christ's sake, don't get the sniffles while I'm gone. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, it's, a, uh, it, it's a CYA type of thing. And I'm curious, Ray. You know, if you had to pick a few things to uh, to leave Sheila for a week, what would be in your STFU mix for Sheila? You know, uh, you know, maybe a nice bottle of wine. Uh, you know, a, a carefully curated playlist on Spotify with all of her favorite tracks. Maybe yep, something sent correct. to her from from Amazon Prime. Yep. You know, from the folks at Moby. Or, or, or you know what? Uh, I I would. Uh... I would actually leave her with the uh, six-foot-tall, 225-pound surfer. There you go. 
take care of this for me, guy, <laughs> while I'm gone. All right? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the likelihood that she has to have uh, emergency abdominal surgery to evacuate something out of her is uh, highly unlikely in that scenario, right? He'll do all the evacuating exactly. himself and, and go on from there. So, all right, let's, uh, <laughs> let's dive in here to the burns. And if you don't know what we're talking about, again, we're, we're, we're going back to some wild talk uh, earlier and uh, I encourage you to, to take a look at that. All right, so, Ray, our first burn. This is what I was talking about with the, uh, the situation with the trains and, and all that, railroads, uh, why the U.S. has a diesel shortage, right? Last week, the Energy Information Administration reported that distillate inventories were at their lowest level since 2008. Primary distillates are diesel, jet fuel, and heating oil. However, in 2008, distillate levels were low coming out of spring. Currently, they are going low into fall. That's the worst situation in 2008. Distillate demand generally spikes in the spring when farmers are planting crops, and in fall, when they are harvesting those crops, people start buying fuel oil for winter. Thus, a low distillate inventory in late 2008 isn't quite as serious as a low inventory in October of 2022. In fact, distillate inventories haven't been this low in October since the EIA began reporting data in 1982. These low distillate inventories are why diesel prices are above $5 a gallon nationwide, and even though the nationwide average price for gasoline has dropped uh, below $4 a gallon. Why is there a diesel shortage this year? There are four factors, but two of those are in play every year. As mentioned above, distillate demand spikes at this time of year, but it does that every year. This is also the time of year that refineries are doing maintenance. They tend to do that in the spring and fall, which is when the demand is lower and the weather is decent. So refinery capacity drops at this time of the year. Third, U.S. refinery capacity has fallen in the past several years as several unprofitable refineries were closed. So that's a new factor that has appeared in the past couple of years. But the primary reason is the cutoff of Russian imports. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. was importing nearly 700,000 barrels per day of petroleum and petroleum products. Most of these imports were finished products and refinery inputs that boosted distillate supplies in the United States. The loss of those Russian imports has caused problems for refineries as they struggle to fill holes in their product slates. Refineries do have a small amount of flexibility in shifting gasoline production to diesel production, but it's a relatively small amount. Uh, the example given here is approximately 5% of refinery I once worked in. So this is the author talking. Uh, that also means that if refiners do shift production, it potentially creates shortage in the gasoline market. Some relief is on the way as diesel imports are on the way from Europe to the East Coast. But the distillate market won't likely return to normal before next summer at the earliest. So, Ray, there you have it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know what, what are we in for here? You know, because, again, uh, People think about those uh, those three three different products, right? Diesel, heating oil, and jet fuel, sort of mm -hmm. as different commodities, but they all do come it's from all, those petroleum distillates. So it it, it all it comes from do? a similar fraction, and so I just foresee continued high prices. And you know, fun fact: uh, on my way out this morning, I had to fill up the service truck, right? And to be honest with you, you know, I swiped my card and the pump shut off at $175. And so for $175, I barely got 29 gallons of diesel. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I know, Ryan. Uh and... 
But then well, I also and- know something too, too, is that, you know, when this fellow was talking about low refining capacity, the reason why is because, at least in the United States, the preferential product has been gasoline, not diesel. And for the longest time, actually, our refineries have been shipping their surplus diesel fuel production to Europe because in Europe, demand for diesel for motor vehicles used to be higher than that for gasoline in the in the recent past. But now that has shifted entirely because I think uh, in Europe, at least, the demand will be for lithium. Yeah, well, we yeah. know why there, right? So it... it... Mm-hmm such a weird matrix right now of how energy demand production everything is shifting right we talked uh, you know several weeks ago about uh you know natural gas in central america northern you know the northern part of south america you know venezuela on over to colombia and just how mm-hmm. that is ripe for the picking and 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 sort of you know that's where some of the investments are being made because of some of the situations in europe and now here we are right um as a as a country in in need of you know imports you know for for diesel production and yeah i don't know i think uh hopefully it's not a cold winter i know that people were you know there was some talk about you know well there's only a 25 day supply left that's assuming that everything shuts down right all production ceases right and nothing gets produced for the next 25 days we would have 25 days on hand and I, I think that number is as low as it's been, I think, since that 2008 time frame back in the spring of that year. And so uh, that's not so much worrisome, Ray. It's more about, you know, just how Europe has been feeling the crunch, right? The crush of energy prices for them for electric and heat related to natural gas and certainly fertilizer production as a byproduct of that industrial use, everything of that nature and production. But are we about to see those same headwinds, right, come here uh, in terms of diesel and stay for a while, just as they have in Europe? So it'll be interesting to watch. It's certainly not something that is a return. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure when uh, Sheila goes to fill up her uh, her big-ass uh, truck, she's not going to like it very much either. So, uh, no. no. You know, got to get a uh, – have to get her a one-ton dually electric vehicle, Ray. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. <laughs> yeah, All right. For sure. <laughs> Based on our previous conversation, Lon's a big contributor to climate change, says a study. There's a radical a call for a radical and fundamental rethink of parks in the grassy quarter-acre section many Kiwis aspire to. This comes to us from New Zealand. Auckland, University's, uh, Auckland University of Technology professor Len Gilman says it's because of climate change. And most people don't really understand how bad it's going to get, he said. He's helped write a new research paper uh, uh, titled Calling Time on the Imperial Lawn. Its findings show that although lawns are often thought to capture carbon from the atmosphere, that's not the case. Once mowing, fertilizing, and watering are taken into account, it says mown grass, in almost every case, is putting out carbon. Over 20 years, it could be as much as 43.9 metric tons of carbon equivalent per hectare, which is about two and a half acres, uh, but other estimates put it much higher. 
Paper calls for a change both at home and on public land. Digging up any unused lawn, placing it underneath trees instead is the answer. We need to be planting, and we've got to cut emissions. That's critical. Mown grass is ubiquitous and everywhere, he said. For example, there's about 16 million hectares of it in the U.S. alone, which is the size of England and Belgium combined. Even if we planted just a third of the grass in cities around the world, we can absorb 6 million tons of carbon dioxide over the next two decades, so it's quite a lot. He said that while lawns are desirable for many, often much of it goes unused. The side of roads, the bits of park that are sort of tucked away in the corner somewhere that nobody ever uses, there's lots of grass there that actually could be planted up and we need to be planting. Ah, Mike I think what he's saying is he's using he's using planting as a different verb. I think in, in talks about using native plantings. I think here. So this paper says it's imperative for governing bodies to put policies and incentives in place. Auckland Council said it can't order people what to do in their backyards, but it can encourage them. Facility managers for parks and community facilities, Carl Beaufort, said the council is a hundred percent into the idea of swapping lawns for trees. So there you go. They want to be planting trees. We really uh. we think it's a really great thing to explore at your home mm -hmm. there's a, a lot of history around how lawns came to be and the social ranking based on lawns all came from the uk heritage and i think it's time we start to look at the change look towards new zealand's nature and what we actually uh, do here in new zealand uh, and what we want our backyards to look like he spoke with one news uh. from the council low mow trial <laughs> patch grass on reserve land is taken out of the regular mowing schedule and extend cut twice a year he said the results of this can be used to inform politicians about what mowing equipment works best for council land and how the council can be cutting its carbon footprint. And, if happy with that, it's socially acceptable, we think that's a win. Hal Davies, Auckland Council's senior advisor for Urban Forest, our council's got uh, urban forest strategy looking to try to increase our overall canopy from the current 18% to 30%, 30%, said Davies. And we really knew need to rely on landowners and the council to be involved in that overall aspirational goal. So retaining trees and planting more trees on private property is as important as council's role of planting trees on council land. And planting the seed for change, uh, Professor Lynn Gilman said that the councils everywhere need to do more. We need to take a much bigger lead, and this is a local, uh, this is a local government throughout the world. Incentives that get people thinking about it and motivate them to do it. What the study says, sort of a little summary here at the end about what the study says, the rate of carbon emissions from mowing depends on the size and type of the mower, how often it's used. But 1.1 to 5.5 metric tons of million tons of carbon could be emitted in the U.S. alone from mowing just every year. Adding fertilizer emissions causes emissions from nitrous oxide. Watering causes emissions due to energy needed to capture, pump, and move water. There will be a fundamental shift in what people perceive as desirable and usable in parks, but the climate crisis is such a magnitude that all possible options must be considered. Woo! All right. Ray, a lot wow. to unpack there. Wow. Um, wow. Wow. You know what? I'm going to stop him right there and say, Cowboy over there is talking out of his ass because it's obvious that this fella has never looked into what it takes to maintain trees from a populated area because ryan yeah what kind of machinery is needed to maintain trees in a congested suburban or urban area because i'm counting tree chippers and big trucks a lot of big trucks 
leaf back. Suckers, can you tell where's me? The, you know, where, where's that? Where's all that? Where's all that leaf debris go? We were just talking about leaves and yeah, mulch where, where's and all where, like that. Yeah, yeah. Where, where's all that trash going? I mean, because for me, if I wanted to control my carbon footprint, you know what the first form of vegetation that would be gone would be? No. Trees. Trees. The trees would go first. Okay, that's Wait, the first Ray. thing to go because. <laughs> go ahead. And the reason why is because city and county of Honolulu had, you know, in their need to be avant-garde, first, whatever, is that has been their policy all along is put trees all the fuck over the place, whether it's practical or feasible or not. And so you have this tremendous maintenance uh, overhead and i still want to know you know you talked about diesel shortages last i heard or seen is that i don't have or the city and county of honolulu for example doesn't have a diesel ferry that keeps the large trucks and the tree chippers fueled okay and likewise They don't have an energy ferry to keep the leaf blowers fueled. They don't have one to keep uh, the vehicles needed to haul all of that crap, you know, off the roads and into a designated disposal facility. I mean, you know, nothing occurs in a vacuum. Right, Ryan? There's inputs, (laughs) outputs, causes and effects and consequences. And, you know, and and I think people like him, they have actually this idea that grass is bad no matter what. And by the way, Ryan, do you know why I'm a big advocate for plant growth regulators on turf grass? Please tell me. It is because plant growth regulators also control and reduce the carbon footprint of maintaining that turf area. It's true. I mean, there's no doubt about that, you know, by slowing that down, right, that we can reduce water consumption, we can reduce fertilizer inputs, right, we can reduce mowing, like all those things, right, become yes. real. And that's yes. not just, that's not just uh, whether you believe in it or not, right? That's, uh, that's the that's science. Here that's the science, Ryan. That's, that, that's the science. <laughs> And Ray, I think there's a tremendous marketing opportunity here for you because, you know, if if we led with the fact that you have an STFU mix, I think, you know, for homeboy here, oh, Professor Gilman, he would be very, very interested to hear more about your uh, ball gag mix, right? Because if we're going to mow twice mm-hmm. a year, you know, we don't want the grass mm-hmm. to just shut up and not get the sniffles, right? We want to turn mm-hmm. it into the gimp from Pulp Fiction, right? And and right. it talks, you know, three three months after it's been mowed, it's, what's that you know grass? What? I can't hear you because you have a ball and, gag and, in your mouth. Fun, you have the ball gag mix on. Yeah, and and fun fact: Did you know that New Zealand has registered paclobutrazole as a usable PGR on ornamentals and turf in that country? Really. Yeah, so they so they have the tools potentially to to do this because I can imagine 
applying a pretty hefty rate of taclobutrazole to, for example, a part or a lawn area, to cut that mowing down from one time a week down to maybe only once a month. Because I know that within the industry, at least, there's this tradition or dogma about weekly mowing. Okay? And that is something where, you remember how, Ryan, I talked about the optics of even spray applications, right? Where I don't want to be seen as the guy that is walking around a lawn with a sprayer every month or every two weeks. Whereas for me, by, you know, better programming, I cut that down to like a few times a year. But similarly with mowing, I think the optics of people seeing what they're mowing that park again or what my neighbor is mowing again and he just mowed last week, you know, the optics aren't good. Whereas what would happen if that mowing were cut down to maybe once every two weeks or once a month even? Wouldn't that change things? It would, I mean, because, you know, especially in a place like New Zealand where I think in most most locations there, they're probably mowing 10, 11 months out of the year. You know, they don't really have yes. A, yes. a true winter, right? So, um, nope. you know, so if you're if you're talking about going from four down to two, 50% reduction, right? Like, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And so mm-hmm. I think uh, there's a lot in this article that, you know, I, I think assumes how lawns are maintained and just blankets that across 16 million acres right and we know for a mm-hmm. fact right that lawns come in all sizes shapes colors right uh management levels expectations inputs outfits everything like that and it would be uh just an absolute debauchery filled exercise to sit there and say from a scientific point of view right that well hey if we yeah. if we extrapolate this out the numbers you know end up here um, I, I don't buy that. Right. And I think that's sort of where, um, you know, that, that's where we could probably get even better, right. Is sort of refining again, we've talked about this before, but you know, sort of that outcome based approach is refining better of what this stuff actually looks like, right. What do we actually end up with and sort of what's a, you know, a good, better, best approach, right. In terms of mm-hmm. outputs, but also too managing those inputs and i think this is where you know um some of this stuff of uh you know domination and some of the facebook stuff the clown world lawn care stuff just yeah yeah chaps the, the, my the knows- we're in burn so i can I, yeah. I can talk about it but it chaps my fucking ass it really does yeah, because yeah, you know it, why go ahead go ahead you go ahead and then i'll, I'll yeah. i'm gonna chat my ass a okay. little more before i say it okay because ryan Speaking to your point, that stuff grinds my gears too. Where I see people bragging about throwing down more and more shit on their lawn and mowing every week, or more or more often than that. I mean, that kind of shit just grinds my gears. Where I know for myself that there's another way to do it that minimizes or lessens inputs, yet 
the turf grass is still commercially acceptable. Because, Ryan, do you see what's on my background? Mm hmm. What if I told you that that only gets mowed twice a month? I believe it. From you? Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is not brown. It is not horrible. I mean, every time this, uh, this client of mine, he tells me, Ray, I drive down the street and my lawn is the greenest one on the street. And it's not because I'm doing more and more and more to that lawn. No, it's called intelligent use of PGRs, intelligent you know, management of nutrients and water, and judicious mowing. Okay? It, that, that, that's what it is. It's like when I see people doing the opposite of what's called minimization and trying to do more, it's like, no. In the case of lawn care, less is more. And when I think these activists see a lawn care clown world, they have a picture in their mind that, oh, for Christ's sake, these people, they're just too much. They're out there spraying everything. They have their mower running 24 hours a day. No, these people just give zero dams, and they're a danger to, you know, the longevity of this planet. Shut them down. <laughs> right, Ryan? Yeah, there's there's no question. <laughs> no question <laughs> that perception is reality in this case, right? And you know, mm -hmm. uh, I I don't know. I, I feel like in, in some cases that tangent of marketing is just like a game of musical chairs that those people are going to go as hard and as fast and as uh, just wanton disregard for whatever might be right or wrong, right? Um, until the music stops and then, hey, whatever, we'll figure it out, right? Maybe there's a chair, maybe there's not. But yep. the the idea mm -hmm. that We've got to continually put stuff down. We've got to do all the, you know, oh, you know, I don't, well, yeah, I dominated and I put, you know, seven pounds of fertilizer, you know, seven pounds of nitrogen in my lawn. It's like, well, you know, the, the point is to guide yourself there, you know, like in the most, not, I wouldn't say, you know, efficient. And people look at efficiency and might say, oh, well, you mean like restrained? No, I don't. I mean, by doing all the right things. Well, I don't have time. Well, then here's some things you can do, right? And we've talked about that before. Oh, hey, I have all the time in the world. I work from home. I can do this. I can do that. Okay, well, here's how I would do it if you had that that you know level of input of time, right? Because that's a big function of it. But um, I don't know. That's that that's the part that continually um, it's hard for me to look at because uh, we know we can oh, do it. Is, and, and the information oh, is out for me to there. look at. Mm -hmm. And and one more thing, you know what mm -hmm. my question is for all of these people that are basically pushing their turf areas like it's a hay field to be harvested. Mm -hmm. Where the heck do those grass clippings go? You know <laughs> where do, where the heck where the heck do all this? Because you know what, I'm gonna even talk a little bit more in that. The convention in my area is that for 100% of all grass clippings to get picked up. 
after mowing okay. or trimming. Guess how much grass clippings I have to pick up or bag? Probably not very much. None. There you go. And and do you know why I don't have that problem or that it added environmental impact, Ryan? Because you know Probably that because truck... you've you've matched inputs to outputs. That's the big picture thing. Yeah, why, yeah. I would because say because the magical energy fairy does not stock or tender that vehicle that picks up the hundreds of pounds of yard waste that your average <laughs> home in Hawaii generates. Okay, there you go. And guess what? That those trucks all run on diesel. <laughs> okay, they run on diesel, and so there's no diesel ferry to keep those trucks filled. So I gotta ask. I'm sure a lot of municipalities are in that same situation. So these jackasses that brag about generating mountains of grass clippings every week, knock that shit off. Please. Now, uh, now I'm going to throw out one more hypothetical that Professor Gilman probably didn't consider in his study. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll end Burns on this because uh, there's some really good returns I want to make sure we have time to get to. And that is this. What if I asked Professor Gilman, hey, all right, I still need to fertilize. And he says, all right, you know, I'll give in there. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you in the middle on the fertilizer stuff. Okay. And I'll say, yeah, Shine, uh, you know, we'll mow twice a year, whatever the hell you want to do, you know? Um, you know, you want to turn this, you know, sexless marriage into a sexless lawn? Yeah, sure, we'll do it. That's fine. So I would ask him, hey, what do you say for the fertilizer? I run down to my local, you know, uh, hardware store, my big box, you know, uh, home improvement mm-hmm. store, or something like that, pick myself up a bag of that. Maybe I'll go to the feed mill, depending on where I live. Whatever, hop in my truck, my car, personal conveyance, and I go over there and I get it and I come back. Maybe I burn an hour, you know, gallon of gas, something like that. Or I could order it from the comfort of my own home and I could have it put in a 45-pound box and I could have it shipped on a plane, a truck, something to a terminal that then puts it on another truck and then make some poor asshole schlep it up my driveway, right? And oh, by the way, before he came there, he knew he had that 45-pound fucking package to put in there. You know, so he went and took an extra long shit, left the Amazon van idling out there, right? Or the UPS truck or whoever delivers this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Took a shit, ate a, ate a Twinkie, maybe sucked down a Ho-Ho 2 in a Red Bull, and then decided, oh, fuck, I'm going to go pick up this heavy box and walk it up this poor fat bastard's driveway so he can have it. And thanks so much for ordering this, Ryan. If you consider that, what do you think is going to have the bigger environmental impact and which one's going to have more, you know, impact on climate change? So, hey, you know, any way you slice it, um, you know, there's there's ways to get better. But, uh, you know, dominating uh, in any respect is certainly not one of those unless you're Sheila and you make Ray shut the fuck up. All right. Let's jump over here to returns. <laughs> la, 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 la. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our returns, and we've got a couple of really good ones here. Uh, kind of a, a point counterpoint here. Dive into our first one here. 
And this is from Don Davis. Don is a uh, an extension agent for Virginia Polytechnic Institute, which is also known as Virginia Tech, as we uh, colloquially know that. And Don is saying here in his uh, article, lawns provide a long list of valuable ecosystem services. Don says, lawns are said to be ecologically dead zones and bad for the environment. In reality, they provide a long list of valuable ecosystem services. They look good and complement your flower beds, shrubbery, and trees. Lawns create a pleasant environment with an expanse of attractive uniform growth. Blades of grass can absorb carbon dioxide and release oxygen in the air just like all other green plants. The roots of turf grass plants are fibrous and extensive enough to protect the soil from getting carried away by wind and rainfall. Lawns filter water as it runs across the land, trapping and neutralizing pollutants before they can contaminate groundwater and surface water. Runoff from lawns can carry improperly applied pesticides and fertilizers into streams, rivers, lakes, and bays, but farms are the main source of these chemicals. Dust and mud are no concern if your home is surrounded by a lawn. Neither are wildfires. Yard with grass will be 10 decibels quieter with one, uh, compared to one with bare dirt, and the noise you'll hear will be softer and less irritating be less glare, air pollution, and heat that builds up. Lawns present a low-cost way to cover ground around your home. A well-maintained lawn adds curb appeal and, pro- curb appeal and property values. Employees and customers appreciate a nice lawn of commercial properties. It conveys a favorable impression and tells the public someone cares about the looks of your business. Lawns are essential for many leisure activities which improve mental and physical health. They provide a safe and resilient surface for croquet, badminton, and other sports. Everyone likes the smell of a freshly mowed lawn. This is because mowing causes the grass blades to release carbon compounds called green leaf volatiles that are similar to those released by fruits and vegetables. Walking along with bare feet feels good to people. Dogs love grass and rolling on it, sleeping on it, and eating it. Rodents and snakes avoid the lawn that are mowed regularly. They do not want to be out in the open and exposed to predators. Small mammals such as chipmunks, moles, voles, shrews live in lawn. Deers graze on lawns and skunks come in at night to dig up insects such as grubs. Many kinds of birds feed in the lawn. These include bluebird, grackle, starling, wild turkey, dove, hawk, robin, and Canada goose. Yellow jackets nest in the lawn while harmless scallop wasps will fly over them to lay eggs and the bodies of grubs. Honeybees find essential nectar and pollen in the white flowers of Dutch clover. Predators such as ladybugs and dragonflies crawl in the lawn and fly over to find food. Among the permanent residents along are ants, solitary bees, 17-year cicadas, and various beetles, including Japanese green beetles and rhinoceros beetles. Earthworm tunnels through the lawn as they feed, and in the process enrich it with their castings. Fungi and bacteria also inhabit the lawn, and they contribute essential ecosystem services, such as recycling organic material and breaking down toxins. So Don does a, a nice job here in a very, very approachable way. I'm just kind of talking a little mm-hmm. bit about you know, some of the benefits of turf grass. And, you know, people will say, well, that doesn't deal with this or doesn't deal with that. Those are the benefits. And, uh, you know, it's not that somebody's made those up. It's, you know, some of that is anecdotal evidence, like people like walking on, you know, grass with their bare feet. Some people might not, but the majority of people, if you're, you know, a warm-blooded American, by God, you better love walking on the grass with bare feet. Uh, You know, just not after Ray has gone out there with a trident and doused it with five gallons per thousand of... uh, you know, your favorite uh, mixologist uh, uh, blend of, of chemicals. That's all. But Yeah, you, yeah. You know, please Ray, don't do it then. <laughs> but, Ray, yeah. here's the thing is, do you think if I asked the average person on the street to name me two, just two, benefits of turf, mm-hmm. 
Do you think they could? Yes. Yes. You think so? They, they def- yeah. They def- your, your average person on the street could, unless they are the part of the anti-turf grass and anti-civilization agenda. In fact, you know what? I have an evil idea. <laughs> oh, gosh. This guy and Professor Gilman really need to get together. Uh, I'll sit these two gents down with the, you know, a bottle of rabbit hole, and I'll say, you know what? You two guys need to talk and work this out because Professor Gilman is just basically saying we want to eradicate all managed and maintained turf grass, get rid of it all, you know, whereas this uh, this professor here, he, you know, touched on all the points of why turf grass is good. And I can tell you, too, that, you know what, uh, Ryan? In spite mm-hmm. of me using various PGRs and fungicides and insecticides on the turf grass, mm-hmm. I still have armyworms coming around. I still have bees no, coming around. I still have bir- I still have birds coming around. And yep, I even have earthworms. And much to my chagrin, sometimes, but then I still got earthworms. So I am going to fight anybody that says that a maintained turf grass area is biologically dead. I can also speak to this other point about how grass, I mean, you know, filters out pollutants and, you know, things that you don't Mm -hmm. want in waterways because I know within my municipality, there's literally a mandate to have grass or mowed vegetation covering all dirt that leads to waterways. There is a mandate, and the reason for that mandate is they don't want things like artificial turf or even gravel because those materials do not do a good job of filtering out contaminants. Oh, I agree. I mean, there's there's none of that, right? You have there there is no uh, benefit in terms of uh, acting as a filter, right? Or you know, the fact that uh, from an erosion control standpoint, grass is far, mm-hmm. far, far superior to that, right? So, um, yes, I, I wish that uh, that uh, these these facts are more known and we almost need to do a, I think there's been several I've seen over the years that, uh, you know, um, have, have done this in sort of an infographic type format. It would be, be mm-hmm. most beneficial to have something like that that, People can look at and see and touch and be approachable. I think that's the other thing. Sometimes we get a little amped up and we get a little too sciencey uh, sometimes with this stuff. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, it, it, it's it's not not ideal. But uh, anyway, so our uh, let's see here. Last turn. I really wanted Matt to be here for this, and I hope that he had a chance to read this. I haven't talked to him about it yet, but uh, we'll we'll do it here on this show because it's a great story. And uh, this this one's coming to us here from the. Uh, Beautiful city of Knoxville, Tennessee, home to Matt's uh, UT Vols, which uh, a couple weeks ago beat uh, Alabama on their home field at Nayland Stadium. So the story is a little bit about how uh, after the game, 
the fans tore the absolute shit out of it. They had a whole bunch of people on the field, tore down the goalpost, and uh, this writer had the great idea to uh, interview the ground crew and talk a little bit about putting it all back together because they had a home game uh, just seven days later. So amid the jubilation, exuberance, and general madness after Tennessee beat Alabama for the first time in 16 years last Saturday, one man stood in Neyland Stadium waiting for one what loomed for him in the aftermath. Darren Sable grew up in Alabama. He knew what a life-changing event it was for Vols fans to see their team take down the tide. So as he stood watching tens of thousands of Tennessee fans storm the field for the first time since 1998, he wasn't surprised. That's a storied program that has won a lot of games the last 12 years. We haven't, Siebold said. Everybody thinks the big rivalry is Tennessee-Florida, but it's really not. It's Tennessee and Alabama. I'm from there, and I know. This was a big win. I mean, the first time in 16 years, you knew it was coming right here. You can't stop it. You just have to let it go. Siebold understand, understood the hysteria, but that doesn't mean he had to like it. Because as the director of sports surface management for the Vols, this was his work under siege. He's overseen all the playing services for Tennessee athletics and has spent 12 years in Knoxville, but this once-in-a-quarter century event. The goalpost, gone, dunked in the Tennessee River. The school was fined $100,000 by the SEC for fans entering the field, which was littered with garbage, a plot of turf meant for 22 players, instead mashed by thousands of delirious fans. Tennessee put out a lighthearted plea for crowdfunding for replacement of the goalpost immediately after the game, but Siebold said they already had it under control thanks to years of watching and talking to other guys in his position of what to expect on Saturday. Turf managers live a behind-the-scenes life, and it's a close-knit fraternity in the business. I probably heard from 90% of the SEC guys, Siebold said. The goalpost coming down, you kind of expect it, so we already had a set ready to go. We've been bad for so long that we watched a lot of goalposts come down in 12 years that I've been here from afar. We just kind of learn from everybody, like, all right, man, this is what you're in for. Uh, he said... <laughs> He was flooded with congratulatory texts from around the country. Then, Time's obviously, up, some were saying, over. like, dang, man, nobody likes <laughs> to see grass torn up anywhere, Seabold said. Most of these guys have been through it. Celebration scenes dominated social media, but one particular got the attention of his colleagues. There was a woman ripping up a huge chunk of turf from the Vols trademark checkerboard end zone in Neyland Stadium. It inspired a fellow turf manager from Oklahoma to consider his own reaction. Uh, this is Jason Fair's at the University of Oklahoma, it says, if this happens to me, I'll need bail money. Ray would probably oh, be right there with you, Jason. Jesse Bousquet, help. <laughs> there you go. Jesse Bousquet is our turf attorney. <laughs> so how did Siebel pull off a flawless field for a home game the very next week at, with UT Martin with a noon kickoff after it was just trashed the week prior? You're going from the highs of beating Alabama that you hadn't done in 16 years to playing an FCS but our fan base, buddy. They don't care if we're playing a high school. Siebold and his staff did it with the whole shit of lawn implements. We're talking aerators, fertilizers, mowers, blowers, and shop vacs to vacuum up grass. A lot of vacuuming grass because when Tennessee beats Alabama, there's a unique challenge after the crowd spills onto the field. First, or when you first see all the cigars, you're like, what is all that? They got dropped, but when they got shredded, then they got shredded. So we all had this tobacco laying everywhere, Siebold said, after the celebratory cigars of the winners of the rivalry always smoke in a thick Alabama accent. But between shoes and cigar tubes, we couldn't get over the amount of clothes. Okay, what'd you do? Walk out here in the field naked? <laughs> his, his embellishment, not mine. Maybe yeah. so, but there's ample evidence that many of those glass cigar tubes went home on anyone's person. Dr. John Sirock, a distinguished professor of turfgrass sciences in the Department of Plant Sciences at UT, witnessed the wreckage firsthand. 
Brockens, the go-to consultant for the NFL Players Association for inspecting field safety at neutral site games like in London, happens to run an esteem center for athletic field safety there on Knoxville's campus. I went there and literally picked up seven heaping handfuls of broken glass from cigar tubes and cigar caps. It was crazy. Siebold said his staff all went out on the field inch by inch because players getting cut was their biggest fear. We got six backpack blowers and we blow off the entire field by hand. Anytime we found a patch of glass, we'd flag it. Then we'd come back with shot backs and suck it all up. Besides the glass, there were a few other surprises. Apparently the balls are so cool they wear their sunglasses at night. We were amazed. I'm telling you, Costa Del Mar, Oakley, Maui Gym, I guarantee they had a lot of profits in Knoxville this week because we found and smashed a whole bunch of uh, lenses and glass frames. Every time you picked up a frame, that's like $200. Sorokin offered up his own surprise. They found a whole bottle, a big handle of Buffalo's Trace bourbon that was empty. Someone <laughs> somehow got that in the stadium. This is my comment that does not fucking surprise me at all in Knoxville whatsoever. No. Crash no. is one thing. No. <laughs> so they, they estimate they had about 50,000 people on the field. And, you know, so they talked about what they had to do to get it sodded. They ended up uh, calling in Carolina Green, uh, based out of Charlotte, that specializes in athletic sod. Sometimes we'll resod entire NFL fields in the middle of the season. So uh, they're talking about thick cut, big roll sod. And, um, you know, each piece that, that comes in there is going to weigh somewhere between. 80 and 100 pounds for every square yard that it comes in on. So it's it's really, really, really uh, heavy, dense stuff. So he talks a little bit about the field here. It's latitude 36 Bermuda grass over seed with perennial rye grass. Uh, you can take it home and grow it anywhere, but uh, it's just Bermuda grass. You could buy it anywhere is what Tarakin says. But uh, they go in here in a little bit more. Uh, they got everything cleaned up. They got it all fertilized. Uh, they did some seeding here. They did some sodding amazing what they had to do uh in in a short time period ray they deserve all the credit in the world because uh as you know right it's always the lawn boy that has to make it look perfect again after it gets all fucked up destroyed whatever happens mm -hmm. right somebody has to go ahead and put all that work in and it's not the people that sell the tickets it's not the people nope. that are you know paying the invoices in fiscal uh and it's not uh you know Ginny and HR, right? It's the poor bastards nope. down there in the grounds shop that are getting it done. And uh, so I can only imagine, I can only imagine uh, the jubilation that Matt felt in watching that. Hopefully he had an opportunity to do it. I wanted to hear him talk about it. And, uh, you know, hey, for him, go Vols. They got a big game coming up this week. I'll, I'll stand here and say it right now. I hope they win. Matt, if you're listening, that's right. I'm rooting for the Vols this week, just like he did in Alabama. Only other time in my life I did so, and they won, so I got a pretty good track record already. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. All right. With that, we're going to close out the show, but uh, for those of us that are watching, right, we're going to go ahead and name the show. If you don't know what that means, if you've heard us say that before, don't know what that's like. So our patrons uh, are afforded the access to watch us tape this show live every single week that we record it. Uh, they're here for the pre-show where we kind of get all the articles together and we kind of talk uh, a little bit more freely, right? Permission to speak freely, Ray? Granted, as always, yes. <laughs> right? But uh, mm -hmm. in, in doing this on the back end here, uh, those folks all get together. Usually there's anywhere from, oh, I don't know, 20 to 40 folks that get online onto our Discord server and we trade uh, different show titles back and forth. We award a winner every week. Send them out, you know, something, uh, if they win a few in a row, they'll, they'll, they'll get a little prize package or something from us, but 
it's always creative it's always fun uh and we like uh towing the line of youtube censorship when it comes to making those that's probably our favorite part (laughs) so with that thanks to everybody we hope to see you all soon and on the next one